their heavenly father. We lift up Jane, Jane Alms' mum today, who's got a brain tumor, God, and we pray that you use the, the surgeons and the doctors that are involved to heal her and comfort her. And use her family, use Jane, to show her your great grace and great mercy. I pray for John Hazelwood as he's on lockdown at Rescue Mission, God, because of COVID-19. I pray that you could uh, heal all that's going on in, the, in, the, in the, the Rescue Mission right now, and that we can have our brother back soon. I pray for the people that are unemployed right now, God, that are unemployed because of the Sheldon Flames order. I pray for the people that are in recovery during this difficult time because there's so much stress and so much uh, not knowing because, and they, they trust in, in, in the drugs or the alcohol, God, thinking that's going to save them and we know that only you can save. We pray that, that your light is shone upon the people struggling right now in recovery. We pray for Jeff and Christina as they moving back to Rockford from Florida, God. We pray that you minister to them, minister in their lives. We lift up uh, David for the extra work, Pastor David, as for the extra work and stress that because of this COVID-19 situation and his job at Fairhaven has become more complicated. And we pray, God, that you can help him and carry the burden for him. We also praise that it's Pastor Dave's birthday today. God, we thank you. We thank you that, that we have Pastor Dave in our church. We thank you, God, that even in this time where we can't gather as a church family together, we are still the church. We don't stop being the church because we can't gather together, God. Help us to understand that. Help us to know that. I lift up all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier this year, I chose as a theme for our church... Community, that's interesting, isn't it? Since community is what we've not been doing. <laughs> but I think maybe God's trying to teach us some things about community while we're not existing or interacting as a community. This series of lessons that will prepare us for coming back together in June is all about learning to function as a church when we get back together as God designed us to function. And as we prepare to meet over these five Sundays, we're going to take a closer look at the theme of community through the eyes of the man who is purported to be the wisest man who ever lived. His name was Solomon, and he said some things about connecting. Now, he says them in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a strange book if you've ever read it, because uh, here's Solomon, the wisest man in the world, and yet he is nothing but miserable at the end of his life largely because he's neglected and contradicted most all of his wisdom during his lifetime. 
And so he writes about it as a miserable, grumpy old man, perhaps some of you can relate, um, and gives us some good tips on how community is built, starting today with what we're going to ask as a question. What is the enemy of community, or what is the opposite of community, or what is it that keeps community from happening? The issue we're talking about is the problem of isolation, and it isn't just um, you cabin up in the Montana mountains and you never see anybody, but it also can be you only let people get just so close. You only hang out with certain kinds of people. You only talk to certain ones at the store or in your neighborhood. Isolation takes many forms. It also can take the form of wearing a mask and pretending to be something that you think other people need you to be instead of just being yourself. All forms of isolation. So notice how Solomon begins this portion of the text from Ecclesiastes 4. There was a man all alone. Now, the curious thing is, up until now, um, Solomon has been journaling experiences from his own life. Now it sounds like he's talking about a third person, doesn't it? Okay. I think this is the third person like people sometimes call me and say, Pastor, I know this person who has this problem. What would you do about it? Because they don't want to admit they're the person they know that has that problem, right? And I think when Solomon says there was a man all alone, he was talking about himself. Now that seems curious since he had hundreds of wives and thousands of concubines, which are like mistresses, all right? So it doesn't sound like he'd ever be alone. He also had lots of children as a result and grandchildren. But you know what they say, it's lonely at the top and he was king, okay? And sometimes when you're king, it can feel pretty alone. In fact, all of that collecting of relationships might be part of what you're doing to compensate for feeling so all alone. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, and yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. In other words, if you don't have any relationships, well, then you have more time to invest in your work, right? But at the end of that, you're going to find out man and woman were not meant to just work. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment. This too is meaningless. This is a key phrase from Ecclesiastes. Meaning, It's pointless. It's void of meaning. And we know this, that if you're involved in something that's pointless, then you're not where God wants you to be because God doesn't do anything that's pointless. He often does things that are painful, uncomfortable, stretch us, all of those kinds of things. He never does anything that is without meaning. But Solomon says, this too is meaningless, a miserable business. The poet John Donne sent a similar thing. Some of you may have had to memorize this. I did when I was in high school, so you may recognize some of the words. I see a couple of you smiling, so I think that's the case. He wrote, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. So if a clod be washed away by the sea... Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. 
Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Relationship is at the heart of who we are as human beings, says Dunn. And when you go, how come I don't have any valid, solid, deep relationships? He says, stop looking around. <laughs> the problem, the bell is tolling for you. Have you been friendly? Have you reached out? Have you tolerated people that may be uncomfortable or difficult to deal with? Science actually backs up both what Solomon said and what uh, John Donne wrote about in his poem. In a little study called the Alameda County Study, Harvard's Social Science Department followed uh, 70,000 people over a lengthy period of time and came to a very strange conclusion. They decided this. Isolated people are three times more likely to die prematurely than those with strong relational connections. In fact, they went on in detail and said that a person who smokes, chain smokes, and eats Twinkies for lunch is more likely to live longer than a person who has a healthy diet and no friendships. That seems impossible, doesn't it? Okay? But scientifically proven. Just what Solomon says. It's not good for us to be loners. Why is it not good? Well, part of the conclusion we're going to come to in today's lesson is this was not God's design for us. God is by his very nature a relational God. He is all about relationships. Sometimes we say he's a covenant God. Well, covenant is just an agreement for the purpose of pursuing relationship between two beings. Okay, And so that's why he's a covenant God, not because he likes contract law, but because he's all about relationships. Now, he was about relationships long before he ever created any of us. He was about relationship by his very nature. Strangely, he is three in one. <laughs> he is a, a three-part um, relationship happening all of the time as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he created mankind. And one of the curious things about the way mankind was, it was part of the great creative week. And each day of the week he would say, let there be light. And the response is, and there was light. And at the end of the day, God said, it is good. Every day, day after day, five days. And uh, then the sixth day comes. <laughs> man create, or God creates man. And he says, it is not good. He says, it's not good that the man should be alone. Just like Solomon said, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. <laughs> man was not created to live alone. Now, we assume God did this to make a point to the man. Because nothing catches God by surprise. So I don't think he said, we'll create the man. They went, oh no, that was a bad idea. I made the man alone. He can't exist alone. But he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make for him a partner. Remember? And that's not just an affirmation of marriage. It's an affirmation of relationship. It's an affirmation of building relationships. John Ortberg, in his book, uh, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, 
writes that uh, a famous philosopher once said, there is within every man a God-shaped vacuum. And until they allow God to fill that vacuum, they'll never be happy, they'll never be satisfied. Well, uh, Ortberg goes on to say, it seems to equally be true that there is with every, in every human being a human-shaped vacuum. <laughs> and until you fill that human-shaped vacuum with meaningful relationships, and by the way, meaningful relationships isn't just knowing lots of people, but it's in having real vital connections with other human beings. It was never God's plan for the man to be alone. It's why it's the only time he created something and said, it's not good. It's not good for us to be alone. So how did we get in this mess that we're in? In other words, if it was never God's plan for man to be disconnected from other human beings, then what went wrong? Solomon says, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. We sometimes say, what's wrong with this picture? One human being alone. We weren't meant to live that way. Uh, a, a film that I enjoy occasionally watching and even re-watching, because I like to ask, could I do that, is um, uh, uh, Castaway. Have you seen it with Tom Hanks? And, uh, and, and that's a good proof of this, isn't it? Because the thing that was hardest for him wasn't figuring out how to eat or drink or how to uh, develop a way of escaping the island. All of those were part of the challenge that he liked. What made him feel like killing himself? No relationship, right? And so then what did he do? He named his, his uh, soccer ball, right, that had like survived along with him and called it Wilson, right? And he developed this like close intimate relationship with Wilson because he discovered couldn't survive, couldn't function without relationship. Even a made up relationship with a soccer ball had purpose and meaning. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Community, writes the following, pretty profound. God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. God has a plan for the universe and it's built upon this idea of relationship. Also, not God's priority, that is, um, God has an order, a hierarchy of priorities like all of us do. We all have many things in our lives that are important, from hobbies to uh, our houses to our work and relationships in there someplace. And the various relationships have hierarchy. And there is a tendency, particularly among men, but not just among men, to actually move work up to the top and then want uh, relationships to fill the void when we get home at night. But that was never God's priority. He made man to work. And to be sure of this, I don't think any human being will ever be happy without meaningful work, without productive lifestyles. But that's not God's priority. Relationship always comes first. 
you, you know probably about me, and most people do, that I like to work in the field of dream interpretation. And uh, in that field, there's a famous book written by Carl Jung called The Symbols of Man, in which he, in, he uh, interviewed people from around the world about the kinds of things they dream about. Dreams are always highly symbolic. That's why if you try to interpret them yourself, you'll probably come to all the wrong conclusions because they're not about another person or about a real thing. They're about what those things or people represent to you. Okay, And if you listen, you'll do well. But this isn't a lesson about dreams. But in dreams, Carl Jung discovered with one of his counseling clients that there was a man who, um, <laughs> who had all of his life been successful at business, made lots of money, and reached the top the pinnacle of his business, but he was absolutely miserable because he was on his fifth marriage and his children all hated him and he had no meaningful relationships or friendships. And so he came to Jung for counseling and Jung helped him work on becoming more relational. And in time he did. He started building some friendships. He started working on his marriage, this one, and he started uh, reconnecting with his kids and the man was happy. But the problem was he started dreaming. And in his dream, something strange happened. Uh, in his dream, he was sitting with um, his uh, cat on his lap, and he was petting it, and his dog came up and ate his cat. And he was terrified by the dream. But in dreams, one of the things we know is there's, there are some common symbols. And generally, cats in dreams represent your aggressive side. Now, I know we usually think of little kitty cats, purr, purr. But cats in the primal sense are predators, okay? And so the aggressive side of man or woman is represented by the cat and the familial side by the dog. <laughs> and so in the man's dream, now that he got good at relationships, all of a sudden he started worrying that he was going to lose his edge in business. So how did he picture that in his dream? The dog ate the cat. <laughs> and Jung had to assure him that in normal productive lives there's room for both but you've always got to start with relationships first and then build a meaningful business life in order to have something to contribute to the people you love but relationships always first and so uh, Solomon says there was no end to this man's toil yet his eyes were not content with his wealth if you have no meaningful relationships, there are not enough possessions to fill the empty spot inside of you. Marla Paul was a uh, journalist, I think she actually still is, and writes a column in the Chicago Tribune. And one day she shocked her readers by just opening up her soul, and here's what she wrote. She said, I am lonely, and this loneliness saddens me. How did it happen that I could be 42 years old and not have enough friends? Now, if you're 42 and you're a columnist for the Chicago Tribune, you rose fast to the top. But at what cost? It seems, she wrote, as though every woman's friendship quota has been filled and they are no longer taking applications. This loneliness saddens me. Why? Because God didn't make us to operate that way. God didn't make us to just be achievers and then have an empty life because we have built no relationships. 
Fourth, it's not God's pleasure for a man to be alone. For whom am I toiling, Solomon says, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Seem to remember a little poetic ditty that said, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Okay. All work and no play, no relationships, no meaningful interaction that's not necessarily productive, but feeds my soul, will leave me empty every time. What happened in the Garden of Eden is a picture of what's happening to us, really. In chapter 2, God has created man and now completed him with the woman, and they've got a marvelous life in the garden because the garden is the perfect place to, by the way, they had work to do, but not just work. They had a meaningful, intimate relationship with God and a boundaryless relationship with one another. Perfect intimacy. As pictured by, at the end of chapter 2, it says, the man and woman were both naked and they were not ashamed. That's a picture of the fact of there was no self-consciousness. Right? It wasn't that, that they weren't sensual. It was, they weren't like, oh no. Do I have all my clothes on correctly? Did I put my makeup all on just the right way? They were fine just the way they were. You, you do understand that, don't you? That the women, reason why women take so long getting ready uh, is not for you, it's for other women. Okay? Because they're, they're going to be under the critical eye of other women. And, and men, the reason why you pretend to be able to bench press more than you can at the gym, it isn't to impress the girls because they could really care less how much you can bench press. It's to try to impress the other guy who's walking by the other muscle head, you know. And then uh, comes chapter 3. In chapter 3, for some reason, man and woman get into their head that the Eden is restrictive. They can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and without it, they'll never be happy. And they take it and they eat it and their eyes are open, so they get what they were looking for, and they lose everything else. <laughs> okay? One of the things is, part of the curse was, their work, which was supposed to be meaningful and fun and enjoyable and productive, now just becomes drudgery. Can you relate? Okay? And they start squabbling with one another. This intimate relationship they've had is broken, and they take fig leaves and, and cover themselves with them. Because now all of a sudden they're going, oh no, how do I look? How do, you know, how do they think I look? That kind of thing all comes because sin has entered the picture. They are removed from the garden, which is a perfect place for relationship building. They're removed. And then they do something that sinful parents should never do. And that's have children. Right? Because they just pass along the sin. And uh, we've all done it, but, but that's what they do. And so their sons grow to adulthood. And how are they famous? Well, that's Cain and Abel. One of them kills the other. All right? There's no harmonious relationships, even within this one family that exists on earth. That was never the way God intended it to be. And the work of the cross looking from the New Testament back, is what restores all of that to perfection. Finally, it's not God's purpose, not 
where God is taking the human race. Uh, He has sent his son, as I said, to shed his blood. That's the price for restoring relationship. For restoring your relationship with God, the cross has become like a bridge that golfs the great gap that our sin created between us and God. And suddenly, now redeemed, we can get back to work on our relationships with one another. Yes, unfortunately, you're probably going to have to love and accept and work with another sinner. But the truth is that God now is in the process and relationships are restored. He concludes, Solomon, this too is meaningless, a miserable business. (laughs) In other words, I keep working at it. I keep trying, but it seems like it's one foot step forward and two steps back. Where's all of this going to end? Well, it explains a lot when you realize that when God reveals a little bit about heaven to us in the Bible, it's always about the restoration relationship, isn't it? And the first thing that we're going to do when we get to heaven is participate in a grand wedding reception. (laughs) The restoration of relationship, the unity of us in Christ, and the unity of of us with our brothers and sisters in Christ together as we celebrate in heaven. You are invited. Blessed are those, says Revelation, who are invited to the wedding supper, the wedding reception of the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? Broken relationships healed in heaven. That brings us full circle today to the challenge from the New Testament which seems to be uh, even more understandable in this light. The writer of Hebrews writes as follows, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. That, by the way, does not just mean coming together for worship. Uh, If you've ever been to a mega church, you'll probably immediately recognize that they can provide more services and meet more needs than a smaller church can, without question. And that's an awesome thing. But it's amazing if you ever meet somebody who goes to a mega church, just just ask them just as a little test, because I do this all the time, if they know anybody else who goes to church there. And it's amazing to find out they don't. How can you sit with a thousand other people for worship and never know anybody's first name? But they do. And partly they think that's what they want. They particularly don't want anybody who might ask them to do something to know their name because they might call them and ask them to do it. All right? But there's something that is not being met on the human level there. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. In other words, it's quite a natural thing to find reasons not to get together with people. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What day? Well, we just read of that day and talked about it. (laughs) The day in heaven. (laughs) The day when we all get there and we go like, oh, that's right. Now relationships do come first in heaven. That's the way they operate. And life down here on earth for us as Christians, just a rehearsal for what's to come, right? That's the way it's going to be. So if you think you can make it through this life just uh, pushing 
relationships aside as a sideline, you're going to find that heaven's going to be a very nervous and uncomfortable adjustment for you. (laughs) Heaven's all about relationships, the celebration of relationships, the deepening of relationships, the joy that comes from relationship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the courage to begin this series. We recognize that so much of what we do naturally destroys community. And yet you've called us to it, that is clear. And so we pray today, in Jesus' name, that as we study together in preparation for the day when we'll be able to, in some form or fashion, come back together, that you would teach us of the beauty and power and majesty and joy of relationship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.